Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Kirsty Major, Commissioning Editor at The Independent, and this is Double Tape, a podcast in which our writers come into the studio to read and discuss one of their opinion pieces. It could be their weekly column or something from the archives that shines some light on this week's news. Today, we're joined by housing journalist Dawn Foster, who will be revisiting her piece from June last year. Help to buy is failing, so why won't our government admit that we're in the midst of a housing crisis? The myth of Cassandra, given the gift of prophecy by Apollo, but on spurning him cursed that her prophecies would never be believed, strikes a chord with anyone with half a brain following the trials of the UK housing market. Unfortunately, nobody in the Conservative Party seems to have put half a brain to work on housing policy, which is, to put it mildly, unfortunate in the midst of a housing crisis. Homelessness rates are rising and rising, both in terms of street homelessness and the less visible households stuck in temporary accommodation languishing on council waiting lists. Renters have huge chunks of their monthly income eaten up by their housing costs, with little hope of saving for a home of their own. Would the owners are trapped watching the cost of a two-bedroom flat rocket, far surpassing the piddling rise in average income we've seen post-recession. So it is little surprise that the latest government solution to the crisis, the Helped by ISA, has been found to help so few people. Since it does precisely nothing to address the core problem, high house prices, few people will be helped onto the ladder. In large swathes of the country, the cost of a two-bed property already falls outside the thresholds set by the government. The purchase cap currently stands at £250,000 outside London and £450,000 inside the M25. A BBC investigation found that 68% of two-bed properties in the South East had asking prices that exceeded the cap and 28% outside of the South East had breached it too. The government is handing out free money to a small number of people lucky enough to find a property within those tight parameters. If you save £12,000, the government will give you £3,000 tax-free in your ISA, but nothing in the housing market changes and no new properties are built. Why? Because the government still believes that an overheated housing market is a public good, that inflated house prices represent earned money rather than a temporary, dangerous, unsustainable economic blip, and because nothing scares the Conservatives more than the idea of a house price crash. Tory housing policy is the epitome of tinkering with the deck chairs while the ship is listing. If your house caught fire and you were hanging out of the window screaming for the emergency services, rushing around with some matches and a can of petrol would be neither helpful nor appreciated. And yet that's exactly the effect of the government's housing policies. In this climate, the help to buy ISA, just like the help to buy equity loans before them, the creation of starter homes and extending the right to buy to housing associations is pointless. There is a way to solve our housing crisis. If the government put people before markets, it would build more council housing, a form of public investment in housing that pays for itself while offering refuge to those who most need it. Housing that gives children a stable and secure home and means rent is paid back into local areas rather than disappearing into the pockets of private landlords. 
Help to buy ISAs won't help homeless families, vulnerable people who've been evicted, or even their intended recipients, young, professional, high-earning couples who are also potential Conservative voters. The housing market is out of control because the housing market is all about profit and not people. If housing is now out of reach of high earners, only the most obstinate politicians would try to deny there is a huge problem. Unfortunately, we're stuck with precisely those lawmakers. If you'd like to have your say on the episode, you can tweet us at Dawn H. Foster and at Kirsty underscore Major. Up next, I talk to Dawn about why a year on the housing crisis has gotten so much worse. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you for coming in, Dawn. It's okay. Um, so reading your piece, we published it a year ago, June <laughs> last year. And what really shocked me was how a relevant it is a year on mm. and also be how prescient the opening lines are about prophecies not being listened to because of course horribly that's what happens in the case of Grenfell Tower mm. and that's something you've been reporting on quite a lot recently yeah I mean it's as you said I went back to read it and I thought maybe I should make some changes before I start and I couldn't think of a single change to make because nothing has changed and things have only gotten worse and you know when it came to Grenfell Tower the big tragedy was obviously you know a huge loss of life but the fact that it was completely avoidable that a lot of this was down to the housing crisis but it was equally down to people not being listened to so it wasn't just the fact that our entire housing system is limping along and really really hurting the most vulnerable and isn't functioning for almost anybody but also the fact that it speaks of a kind of wider rot across Britain I think it's a I think we have a big issue here in the in the, in the last 30 years. The state has been hollowed out, both locally, nationally, and in terms of services. And I think Grenfell Tower was the kind of biggest, most tragic symbol of that. And they're still not being listened to. And no. there's still a hollowing out of who do you go to, who's accountable. And so today, they've released the scope of the inquiry, and it's only going to be limited to the causal mm. reasons for the fire and not to the wider issues of housing policy mm. do you think that's a that's the right move or the wrong thing to do i think it's the wrong move i think every resident i've spoken to has said right from the outset that they feel that they were victims not just of a you know maybe some decisions that were made with the building and renovation of the of the tower but actually the victims of 
wider society, the victims of how we treat the poorest in society, how we treat migrants, how we treat anybody who can't afford to own their own home and who isn't in a high paying job. And I think that they're right. You can't just take this out of the context that it is in. And also, if we just look at one or two things about the structure of the tower, about the, the way that certain things were carried out when it came to renovation, we lose the opportunity to uh, find out exactly what it is that is wrong with Britain that causes to happen. We also mean, I mean, it also means that for other people, you know, it doesn't stop this from happening again. It doesn't address how many other people are in similar situations that, although it may not culminate in the same problem, but it it will continue to victimise people. I mean, all you have to do is look at, you know, South London this week, where you have the, you know, four tower blocks in Peckham that were, you know, even before Grenfell Tower happened, I spoke to residents who had cracks in the wall and were worried about the structure. They were worried about their safety. And now it turns out that all along they were in massive danger. So in 1968, when the Ronan Point Tower block collapsed, um, it meant that we changed building regulations in this country because essentially you had concrete blocks that were held together by a couple of big industrial screws. So when there was a small gas explosion, the entire tower collapsed. After that, tower blocks were supposed to have been renovated if they were built in the same way. And obviously at some point, either the council were told it had been renovated or somebody else claimed they did it and didn't do it because all along this these four tower blocks have had this unbelievably unsafe structure and it's been like that for you know 50 years and in all that time people were in danger and we have no idea how many other people are in the same position and also we need to, you know without the inquiry being bigger there isn't going to be any kind of change in the way that we listen to people there isn't going to be any accountability that means that if people if people as in grenfell spoke up to councillors to mps spoke up to the landlords we need to actually make sure we listen to them and we change things as a result and as we reflected on your piece it, it doesn't seem like the government or councils are listening to any warnings about housing mm. be it small scale we think there's a problem with our ceiling as another mm. issue you wrote about or actually there's much wider structural issues at play here people can't get on the housing ladder mm. you mentioned some other things as well as social housing in your piece like extortionate rents mm. people not being able to buy their first home has there been any development with those absolutely not either? i mean the only thing the government have brought in is uh, a small bill about Stopping, re re stopping revenge evictions, which is pretty toothless. It doesn't really do anything. And also, if you do get evicted by a landlord and you want to take them to court, legal aid isn't there anymore. So yeah. you find someone to do it pro bono or you just don't do it. And almost nothing has happened apart from you know these small little tinkering uh, around the edges decisions but nothing has changed people are still struggling to get on the housing ladder people are still paying huge rents i had two friends recently who were trying to move to london and i was just shocked at some of the tales they had where they said they'd turn up to view a flat it was really, really pokey it had mold on the walls and uh 
and there were 14 people viewing it and they were told that because there were so many they were going to put the rent up by another 50 quid i've spoken to lots and lots of people who you know were in their 20s have a kind of professional job and are at this point considering considering whether they should be bunking up with friends sharing a bedroom because they just can't afford it anymore and you know since the recession we've seen house prices rise and rise and rise what we haven't seen is our wages rise. Mm-hmm. And more and more people are empo- employed precariously, so they're struggling to make ends meet month to month. And as long as rents are high, you can't afford to save for a house. And even if you could save for a house, the amount you're going to have to save is obscene. And that's really frustrating. I So <laughs> uh, on a personal note, I took a friend, a flat viewing for the first time in mm. London from Liverpool. That's and a culture sh- shock. Yeah, and I was like, look, I've got to break it to you. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Like, this is going to be really awful. So this this brings me to to one of my big questions, which is, and it's something you brought up in your piece, mm. which is housing is profit over people. Yeah. So we've taken what essentially should be a necessity, just like a basic necessity for shelter, safe mm. and affordable shelter, has all of a sudden been turned into an instrument of finance. So for councils, mm. that's, I mean, not even for councils, because tax receipts go back to central government actually, yeah. for social housing. <laughs> Don't even get that, do they? Um, landlords, mm. um, people buying houses, not because they want to buy a house, but they don't see any future for themselves with a state pension so they need to buy Mm. it as a nest egg people buying in london because it's an investment Mm -hmm. opportunity so my question is is housing so integral to the way that we plan the uk economy that the only way to solve the housing crisis is a shake-up absolutely i mean one thing that worries me is i mean where i think it's the 10th year 10th year anniversary of the uh financial crash and Obviously, when Osborne was in charge of the UK economy, uh, before he became in charge of a newspaper, he 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 would point at green shoots in the economy and say, look, austerity has worked, we're back on track. And then when you actually drilled down into it and looked at what where the growth was coming from, you realise that the amount of GDP that rests on housing is utterly terrifying. And... You know, increasing numbers of people can't afford to buy homes. You have uh, increasing numbers of foreign investors plowing money into it. All it takes is for us to finally reach a tipping point where almost nobody can buy and then the market collapses. And we're getting quite close to that now. You know, if you look around London and speak to estate agents, as I have the misfortune to do quite a bit for my job, they all say that the luxury market is tailing off. So... Where I live in Clapham, I live on the top of a small low-rise council block. And from my balcony, you can see the Thames. And at the moment, it's just a tangle of cranes. Lots and lots and lots of luxury flats popping up. And I walked home from Victoria to Clapham the other night. And it was just fascinating how you could see the financialization of the housing market just by walking down the street. So I walked past a lot of um, you know Victorian uh, built council homes that were all you know, nice red brick blocks, very very desirable. Lots, you know, there's still some council tenants living in there. Lots of people trying to get an entry right to buy, and they were all full. There were lots of lights on. It was Saturday evening, but lots of people were home with their families or you know, in couples, etc. And then when you got to the river, 
you saw all of these big skyscrapers. There's a very, very tall one called St. George's uh, Tower at St. George's Wharf. And it's, you know, Guardian Investigation revealed last year that it was almost entirely foreign owned and nobody lives in it. People have bought it. They've treated it like a asset locker. And it's a safer investment than stocks and shares. So they've just bought it up. So I walked past it, looked up, counted about five lights on, carried on walking um, past Vauxhall Station and saw four very, very large blocks of luxury flats. No lights, you know, no lights in them whatsoever. Managed to find one or two lights in some of the blocks, but a lot of them were completely empty. And when I, you know, and I thought maybe they haven't been sold yet, looked them up online, all sold, all completely, you know, bought up, but empty. And then walk a few minutes away and you reach another council estate, all the lights are on. And at the same time in Lambeth, you have a huge council waiting list of people desperate to get into housing. And nobody is building houses for low-income people. Nobody is building houses for you know young couples who are on middling incomes and want to get want to have children, want to get on the property ladder. Instead, what they're doing is building houses that make a huge amount of profit. And often when you go into them, you realise they aren't even built to be lived in. Not the, at all. There's an estate yeah. close to me and a really telling fact about this new estate that's been built is that there's a, a meeting room that you can hire <laughs> out. Families don't hire out meeting rooms. No. Real people don't hire out meeting rooms. People who were dropping off into the city <laughs> and dropping out for financial business deals need meeting rooms where they live. And it's and this and this is the problem with the Conservatives and you know, pretty much Labour before them saying that all we need to do is leave housing to the market. You do actually need to break in and interfere with the market because it, you know the, the house, housing is very different in terms of economic goods in that it is what people people need it. Uh, and unfortunately, we have so lots of people who can't access it. So you have people on the streets who are homeless. You have people who are in temporary accommodation and, the, you know, the cost of temporary accommodation for council is sky high. So expensive. It's, you know, you, I mean, I spoke to one family who are living in a one, you know, there were five of them, they're living in one bed and the council were paying about £800 to a private landlord for this a week. And if we built a council home and they lived in it, the housing benefit they paid would go back to the council. But, and I think this is why, I think one of the biggest indicators that, our attitude towards housing has become so perverse is just after the Grenfell Tower fire when everybody was discussing how to house residents, how to house so many people who've been, you know, kicked out of their home because it caught fire. And, you know, Jeremy Corbyn came out and said that we should consider requisitioning homes mm -hmm. because, as everybody pointed out, there were, I think, 1,650 empty homes in, in, in Kensington and Chelsea. And instantly the backlash was obscene. I mean, the number of people I saw, you know, relatively wealthy homeowners came out and said, you can't do this. People's property rights pr trump everything else. And if you look at the you know, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, humans have a right to shelter. Yeah. But people cared more about people's right to own a property and leave it empty at a time of a severe housing crisis that sees people on the street, that sees people with no home. And it seemed that a lot of people, you know, who were very vocal had come out and said that property rights trumped your right to shelter. Luckily, when YouGov asked 
you know, a wider panel of people, a kind of representative panel, turned out 68% of people agreed that empty homes should be requisitioned and, you, you know, and agreed with Jeremy Corbyn rather than agreed with the property fetishists. There is a public appetite. I mean, the response to the Labour manifesto, especially the housing part of it with, you know, more social housing, mm. rent cap. Yeah. Not control, it was a cap. Yeah. Um, people people want it. I was actually really surprised by how mm. many people were up for requisition and empty properties. It's um, it, it surprised me. But it is, yeah. I mean, it, I find it really fascinating how it was a it was a really common trope amongst the election where Jeremy Corbyn would come out and say something and the Conservatives would act shocked. You know, a big chunk of the media would act shocked as if he kind of proposed making Britain a communist state. And what? That's not what you know, happened, no. well, I mean, it will be, but... <laughs> but Every single time, you know, the Conservatives will say, oh, he's off his trolley, he's, you know, this wild communist. And then Hugo would come back and people would agree with him. And I just think we've become completely brainwashed through kind of decades of centrism into believing that um, the British public won't entertain left-wing ideas. They will only entertain very tame kind of third-way triangulated ideas when actually there's a big appetite for change. And that comes from, you know, people being completely sick of social injustice, people being upset about the fact that food banks exist, people being upset that homelessness has doubled in seven years, and people being upset about seeing people being burnt out of their homes. So actually, I disagree with that point. Mm. I think, I don't actually think that it's to do with um, people perceiving other people's situations. Mm. I think it's a lot to do, especially with housing, about people feeling it themselves. Yeah. People thinking, I worry that I can't keep up my mortgage repayments or I, you know, I'm a well-to-do in my 20s, got a good degree, but still can't ever imagine mm. owning my own house. I give away a third of my income to rent each month. I feel like housing, no, people I, are really starting yeah. to feel it. But no, I completely agree. And I think that that, I think, I think housing is actually one of the big reasons why Labour did so well. And it's not just because of the housing policies they put forward. I think they were quite tame. They could have they, they, they could have been more adventurous with housing than I think they should have been. I think it comes from the fact that when you look at the age of people who voted Labour, obviously, you know, it's a very, very stark difference. The younger you are, the more likely you are to vote for them. But I think that the Tories expected a lot of people in their 40s and kind of early 50s to vote for them. But actually, a lot of people in their 30s and 40s have been hit really, really badly by the crisis themselves personally. Mm -hmm. But also a lot of people in their 40s are you know, thinking about their children and thinking, where will my children live uh, if we can barely afford mortgage repayments how on earth are they going to afford it uh and also people who have children in university university is you know it's, I, I don't understand how students get through now given how expensive you know uh, costs are when i was at university i had to have a job on top of my studying and then every christmas every easter holiday every summer i had to work full time just to just to make ends meet and you know, I 29, so it's like started uni about 10 years ago. And now when I look at how much the student loans increase, which is barely by barely any amount of money at all, and housing has almost tripled in costs. The cost of food has gone up, the cost of fuel and transport has gone up. Everything has gone up so much. Student loans haven't. And all we're doing is, is meaning is, is sending our kids off to, you know, to 
pay £9,000 a year for university, struggle to pay their rent. And, you know, I speak to so many students now who contact me about housing and say that they're going to drop out because they can't afford it. So, you know, you start life saddled with debt. You're never going to afford a house. And your student overdraft goes entirely on your rent. And when I speak to students now, it has changed them. They drink a lot less they go out a lot less and they have a, a, lot, a lot less fun and you look at people in their 20s and they aren't going out anywhere near as much as you know my friends in their 40s that they did when they were in the, in the 90s and then you look at people in their 30s who want to have kids and are still in shared accommodation and I think it's completely changing the pattern of British society and I think it's going to be a really really lo- you know a really really long lasting problem if lots of people don't have kids or have kids a lot later if lots of people drop out of university and I think often with politics we assume it's going to be a short you know we were constantly told austerity was short-term belt tightening but we don't take into consideration just how much like five years of a policy will change people's life and have a huge impact on them in the long term and it is a long-term problem i always think about when people use the term housing crisis Mm. and i think it's not a crisis it's a it's a permanent state of being for the UK It's right a permanent now. dysfunction at the yeah. moment because the only thing that will change it is an intervention. And the reason why nobody wants to intervene is because the only way to do that is for some people who own homes and have made a big profit on those homes to take a hit. So house prices will have to come down and that means that you know, some people will end up in negative equity. Some people who, you know, are expecting a huge windfall if they sell their home suddenly won't have it. So there isn't a way that I can see to keep the people who have made some money, you know, on the housing, you know, on the permanent housing dysfunction, we'll call it, not the housing crisis. I don't think there's a way of doing that without some people at the top taking the hit. And most politicians don't want to do that because homeowners vote. And I think the only thing that could change that is the fact that we've seen more young people coming out, young people are getting more upset, and it's reaching you know, further into society. I think there'll come a point when absolutely everybody is affected by the housing crisis very, very adversely. And at that point, maybe, you know, it'll be very late by that point, but at that point, maybe we will have a crash, or the government will have to intervene and do something to you know, regulate prices. If you had the opportunity to bring in three policies Mm -hmm. what would your top three be to solve the permanent housing dysfunction because it's not a crisis build council housing build a lot of council housing both to house people in the immediate uh in, in in you know in the short term immediately and also to give people the opportunity if they wanted to to rent directly from the council when i speak to a lot of people um who you know who rent and i say if money were no object would you rent or would you buy and they all say buy and then you say okay if money were no object and and there was huge availability of everything would you buy rent privately or rent a council a, a home from the council and then it kind of splits quite evenly between buying your home and renting from the council because you realise what everybody actually wants is security and they're not too worried about actually owning a property and having to deal with the boiler themselves. So yeah so my second one would be to make homelessness illegal so if somebody comes to the council and says I am homeless the council have a duty to house them they cannot turn anybody away um, if you live on the street and you go to the council, you should be given a home. Everybody should have a right to a home. Everybody should be given a home if they're homeless. So make 
homeless is illegal because I think that's the only way you'll actually get councils and the government to take it seriously. Uh, and thirdly, I think I would ban second home ownership. And obviously people come out and say, yes, but, you know, some people need a second home. And, you know, what about my one friend who commutes from Liverpool to London, etc.? I think if you're living in them, it's fine. But I don't think there's any need for someone just to have another house for the sheer love of having one. And I think if we are in a crisis in the short term, why should some people have two houses while other people sleep on the street and have none? Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Do subscribe on iTunes, Acast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Helen Hoddenot, who produced this episode. I'm Kirsty Major. See you next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,